common first name for a United States history teacher in high school today. Research suggests it's probably Coach. We'll talk more about why American students don't learn much about the Civil War or any other history in high school with our guest James Lowen, author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. My guest today is James Lowen, author of Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong. We've been talking about some of the more egregious monuments and plaques that you can find around the country that tell the Civil War story from one particular point of view or another. Uh, For example, the South Carolina Monument at Gettysburg that uh, asserts the state's rights origin of the war, certainly a controversial uh, interpretation and one that many scholars would argue has been laid to rest for some time. There are other uh, monuments that portray uh, perhaps not explicit theories about the war, but certainly give a a slanted perspective on on what happened. And then some of them are just kind of silly as well. Uh, One I'm familiar with in the latter case I'd like to ask you about, uh, James, is the Abraham Lincoln Birthplace Memorial in Hodgenville, Kentucky. Uh, Can you describe that to our listeners? Possibly, if you're here. It, it turns there. out that um, people in South Carolina knew full well that South Carolina had seceded over slavery. That this whole states' rights myth is a creation of the period 1890 to 1940, which we often call the nadir of race relations in, in the United States. Nadir, of course, meaning low point. Um, and this this nadir is still affecting us today. Nobody called the Civil War the war between the states during the Civil War. This, too, is a creation largely of the Nader period. And um, 
so even even the, the best selling, in fact, the, the only substantial history of South Carolina ever ever written, uh, specifically states no, it wasn't for states' rights; it was for slavery. So I think in 1965, when the folks put up that monument, they knew full well they were doing bad history. But it's interesting. I, I say that every statue, every monument, every memorial, every site. Uh, is a tale of two eras. It's a tale of what it's about, in this case, 1863, and it's a tale of what it, when it went up. And, of course, in 1965, uh, South Carolina was indeed an advocate of states' rights and was trying to have states' rights instead of following national laws about school desegregation and so on. So that's, that's kind of an interesting side point. Well, you, you make the point in your book that there are uh, questions a person ought to ask when they visit a, a historic site. Yes. And uh, that relates, that's certainly part of what you need to think about, isn't it? Yep, you need to ask when it went up. Often the most important date on a monument isn't even on the front. It's down in the grass in the back, and it'll be on 1917 or, or whenever the heck that thing went up. If you look at the, uh, the Civil War monuments on every courthouse across, uh, every courthouse lawn across the Midwest and the South and New England, uh, I think you'll find the majority of them date to the 1890s uh, or afterwards. Well, uh, it, it depends. Uh, the southern ones, mm-hmm. that is the Confederate ones, typically went up between 1890 and 1940. Most of the United States ones went up as early as 1864, actually, uh, from 1864 to about 1890. Mm-hmm. So they're earlier. And, and the reason I think this happened is that you usually put up monuments when you win. And I really assert dead seriously that the Confederacy won the Civil War in 1890. Now, of course, I know it ended in 1865, but they won it in 1890, and they won it in several ways. Uh, one way is they got to redefine what it was about, and now it became about states' rights. Another is they got to rename it, and now it became the war between the states. Uh, a third one is that they got to impose, again, on their black population, if not slavery, certainly not citizenship, uh, certainly a, a, a second-class form of citizenship, no voting, of course, after 1890 or thereabouts with the uh, the new Mississippi Constitution of that year that was followed then by every other southern state and, and states as far away as, as Oklahoma. So they really won it in, in that year. Are you familiar with David Blight's work, Race and Yeah, so he and I, I think, are in complete agreement. We like each other's work. I, I, I think he, he expresses very much the same view, that it was yeah. uh, a, a national reconciliation takes place after 1890 uh, between the North and the South, agreeing to depoliticize the memory of the war yep. in, in exchange for forgetting its causes, especially yep. the, the issue of, of the former slaves. Yep. And it's kind of over the dead body of black folks and, and their rights. I, I had the experience this past week of showing a uh, undergraduate uh, classroom uh, studying the Civil War uh, excerpts from the film Birth of a Nation, 1915, yeah. uh, which portrays, as you put it, the nature of race relations, the historical it even. <laughs> it, it's an incredible film. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with it. But the the explicit racism, uh, the the incredibly degrading portrayal of African Americans in what was a mainstream movie at the time, is, is is hard for students today to grasp. Well, you know, one of the it, that's right, and and it, it was such an important movie. It was the first great epic, of course. Most movies were eight to ten minutes long, and here there's two and a half hour movie tools along. And furthermore, today we usually show it at the wrong speed. 
you know, projectors can either show 16 or 24 uh, frames a, uh, a second. In fact, most of them today only show the 24, but some of them still show, you can click it, uh, put them on a 16 thing. Well, that one's filmed at 16 frames a second, and so when you show it at 24, everybody moves around jerkily. Uh, in fact, we see this in a lot of uh, Chaplin films That's and so right. on because they're being projected at the wrong s speed. When you project that at the right speed, it still even has some power today. It, it's a, as movies go. It is indeed powerful. Some of the tricks that are used uh, yeah. are, are, are something else. Now, we uh, as we came on this segment, I was I think cut off briefly. I was about to ask you about the Abraham Lincoln birthplace yeah. in Kentucky. Well, it, I, re I remember visiting it when I was a Boy Scout, and I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and we took this 34, I think it was, mile hike uh, that ended up there and, and uh, got a medal for it. Well, there was only one problem. That Abraham Lincoln's cabin fell down before he was ever president. Um, and the whole thing is a hoax. Um, the, and I, and I uh, cite a wonderful historian, Dwight Pitt-Casley, who is the chief historian of the National Park Service. So the National Park Service knows full well that it is a hoax. Um, in fact, there was a guy named Robert Collier, who was the owner of Collier's Magazine, and some of your older listeners will remember Collier's. It was a competitor of the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, some of your middle-aged listeners will remember that one. <laughs> and uh, so he bought it. He bought the farm, uh, the Thinking Springs Farm where Lincoln lived, and then he hired an agent to go put a... Uh, well, wait a minute. That's not quite true. He did buy the farm, but somebody had previously bought it and sold it to him, and the previous guy... Uh, had an agent who put a cabin on the farm, uh, and even uh, we even have an interview with him uh, from a journalist who said, "Well, uh, is that really the cabin that Abraham Lincoln lived in?" And the guy replied something like this: uh, "Well, one cabin's as good as, as another one, isn't it?" <laughs> it it's uh, it's all what you believe, and for some people, yes. So this cabin had a wonderful history itself. The cabin that is there, this cabin, after it got put on the farm, well, people didn't visit it much. This was way back in in uh, maybe 1900, even before mid 1890s. Uh, they didn't have cars, of course, and there weren't any good roads going to this little bitty town in, in Hodgdenville, Kentucky. So the entrepreneur took the cabin to the people. He first took it to Buffalo and put it at the Pan American Exhibition, kind of a huge World's Fair type thing that was going on in Buffalo. And he put it right next to the uh, what he called the, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, who, my gosh, who's the president uh, of the Confederacy? You're thinking Davis. Davis. Jefferson Davis, Davis log cabin. Uh, well, Jefferson Davis wasn't even born in the log cabin, but that didn't stop him. So he's got both of these cabins, and he hires some local black folks to be uh, posing as slaves. And this turned out to be a very popular exhibition at the uh, Buffalo Fair. So when the fair closed, he took them both to Coney Island. But alas, on the way to Coney Island, the two cabins get commingled on the boxcar. When they get put back up, it says one big cabin. Didn't slow him down a bit. He just changed the sign. Now it's the Lincoln-Davis log cabin. And presumably they both got born there, although on different days. Um, then the cabin goes back to Kentucky, and finally um, Collier buys it. And Collier hires a famous American architect to build a suitable shrine to put the cabin in. And so the architect does. It's a little Greek temple, in fact. A lot of people have probably been there and know what I'm talking about. Only he miscalculated. He actually made it too small. And when, you, when he put the cabin up inside... It was too scrunchy for any sizable crowd at all to walk around and stay outside of the cabin but inside the temple. So he knew just what to do. He cut the cabin down. 
So the cabin is now two-thirds the size of a normal cabin and two-thirds the size that it was before he had it cut down. And this only makes for a bigger story because the tourist looks and says, oh, what a little cabin. Those folks were really poor. It was a wonderful. We live in a great country. Look at all the upward mobility we can have. But it's not the right size cabin. Well, it turns out the Park Service will actually hand you out, and I I got one, a three- or four-page instructions on how to build this cabin, complete to the wrong dimensions. And a bunch of people have built them. And so there's another one of these cabins, for instance, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, put up by the Lincoln Life Insurance Company, which is located there, and there's people well, I, even put them in their backyard. I, I worked for the Lincoln Museum for nine years there in Fort Wayne, and I'm very familiar with that cabin yes. in uh, uh, the park uh, on the south side of town, yep. which is now used, you'll want to know, to store uh, snowblowing equipment and other park <laughs> maintenance uh, gear. It's, no, it's known to very few people. You have to really go looking for it. Uh, but it's still there, and it is, as you say, an exact replica of the completely inaccurate reproduction yeah. that is inside. It's a great the, uh, country. I mean, we didn't have this cabin, so by gosh, we have to invent it, and we did. <laughs> and, and there it is, and so you can see it in all its glory. Now, let me ask you about a more sinister Civil War monument. Uh, maybe I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, the statue to Henry Wirtz in uh, Andersonville, yeah. Georgia. Well, Andersonville is a problem. I, I've been to Andersonville. You're in North Carolina, is that right? I, I'm yes, North Carolina now. Yeah, so I'm sure you've been there. It's not very far. Um, Andersonville, of course, is the the worst of the Civil War prisons, and and a lot of them were bad on both sides. But Andersonville was, without a doubt, deliberately bad, and and we know this partly because Wirtz himself personally refused a visit by some nearby neighbors of Andersonville, some white Georgians, who came with with food for the starving prisoners, and Wirtz wouldn't let them deliver it. So all the claims that, that Wirtz did the best he could, and it was just a problem of Confederate supply lines and so on, vanished as soon as you realize he did that. Uh, and he is, of course, the only person uh, ever to be executed as a result of the, the treason that the Civil War did actually entail. Uh, and, and he's executed for the war crimes that he committed at, at Andersonville. Well, the, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and other neo-Confederates have spared no... Uh, no ideological expense, if you will. They've, they've not only rehabilitated folks like, like Lee and Davis, of course, but even Wirtz. And so he gets this uh, monument in the center of the tiny little town of Andersonville, which is a, um, well, it's often called a centotaph or a, a obelisk, kind of like the Washington Monument, but much smaller. That's, I think that's, a, that's too bad. <laughs> Now, to uh, to counteract that, I should point out that National Park Service does have a, a very stirring museum to prisoners of war. Uh, they do, but you notice it's to prisoners of war generally. Yes. And there's, when I visited it, which which was several years ago when it was brand new, they had much more about POWs in Europe than they do about than they did about Andersonville or about POWs in in the American Civil War. I don't know if that's still true. I, I would imagine so, certainly. Yeah. Well, now you also your your first uh, publication to really make a splash in showing what what our what is going wrong with our history education in America was your study of American history textbooks. And as I point out in the introduction, uh, too many American history classes are taught by the football coach, yeah. uh, with the assumption that anyone can just open a book and and assign history. Yeah, I without... think that that my book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, could have been subtitled "Revenge Against Coach DeMolin. <laughs> he was my history teacher, 
And he was the basketball coach. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, I come from central Illinois. This is Larry Bird country. He's, he's one state over. But, and basketball is king. In fact, um, Decatur High School actually won the state basketball championship more often than any other high school. And so Coach DeMola knows full well that he's not going to get hired or fired on the basis of how he teaches American history. He's going to get hired or fired on the basis of the one-loss record of the basketball team. So he didn't give a damn about how he taught American history, and he taught it straight from the book and uh, just asked us the endless questions at the end of each chapter, and we had to memorize that stuff, and that's all we did. Well, that turns out to be a paradigm. I mean, I, I gave a talk one time at Texas A&M uh, in Texas. Uh, it was actually at the Commerce um, uh, campus, and it was what was called a, a, a convocation, meaning that the whole faculty came in academic garb and mm. hundreds and hundreds of students came. It was a big crowd. And I asked, how many of you had a high school history teacher whose first name was Coach? And applause ricocheted through the auditorium, and 60% of the people there put up their hands, including 60% of the faculty. So this isn't just a problem in my hometown. This is a problem across the South and across the Midwest. It isn't so common in California or on the west, uh, on the East Coast. Um, why do they do this? Well, they don't want to have Coach DeMolin or the Coach DeMolins of the world teaching English. The students will come out illiterate. Uh, so let's have them teach something that doesn't matter. That's the thinking. And, of course, this immediately demoralizes the real history teachers because they're being told by the central office and by the principal that their subject doesn't matter. Uh, I, I know I was a little discouraged when I had to look up something from my daughter's uh, middle school and found the Pitt County uh, directory, and there was a department of uh, summer school physical education and social studies. Oh, man. As a combined that's, uh, Now, that's a new one. It, it it was uh, that is a demoralizing. Yeah, uh, there are things working in the right direction uh, in, in history education, like National History Day and other programs. Yes, but but the textbooks you read, I, I recall my history high school history textbook as a, a just a terrible, dull. Uh, the first thing wrong with it is it's so big. It was the biggest book you had to lug home. I'm Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. And they still are. And not only are they still just as boring, they may even be the same book, Jerry. I mean, some of these books have been in print for 50 and 60 years. Of course, they go through new editions. The mm -hmm. authors are all dead. It's a little bit embarrassing. So now the publishers are adding new authors' names to the front of the book. It's not clear if they write them, uh, but, they're, but they're credited with them so that they don't just only credit dead people. Now, how, I mean, people listening to this show are doing so because they think history is interesting. And yeah. there's a history channel, and there are history movies and history uh, tours. Uh, people love history. Yeah. How can you make history boring? It's not easy, is it? But yet, study after study shows that history or social studies is the least liked subject in high school and even in middle school. Um, and, I, and many of the people that you're talking about who are very interested in, in uh, the Civil War, uh, of course, was the be best-watched series in the history of public television. Uh, Dances with Wolves was a big seller, and so on. They're very interested in history. They, too, hated, like I did, their high school history textbook and their high school history course. The exceptions are usually those people taught by some of the uh, different teachers who dare to critique the book and who get students actually doing history and actually reading stuff and thinking about uh, issues. And that does happen. Uh, but what happens in the average textbook, is, uh, average course, is that you just read the textbook and you just answer those stupid questions at the end of each chapter. And that's how it becomes so boring.
Well, it, it's un- unfortunate but true. Hopefully we will avoid the trap of becoming boring about history in our remaining segment. We'll take a break now in Civil War Talk Radio and come back in a few minutes with James Lowen to talk about some of the issues of the Civil War that are still with us today.